Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161X44, Growing Moral and Religious Collapse of the West. World, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 144, April 16, 1987. Otto Scott and I have with us here tonight R.E. McMaster. We've had R.E. with us before, and it's a pleasure to have you with us again. Tonight we'd like to go into the matter of the growing moral and religious collapse of the Western world, which is, of course, now the world civilization. What it is doing to the spheres of economics, <laughs> politics, and more. Because of the root of the collapse we see on all sides, educational and social, is the religious and the moral collapse. And we're not going to turn the present world around. We're not going to see a recovery in any sphere until we see it first in those two spheres. Ari, you've called attention more than once to the fact that there is an inseparable connection between religion and economics, that economics is religion applied, and uh, hence it is not understandable apart from a religious faith. Yes, uh, what I've really come to in terms of looking at collective human action is that government is always religion applied to economics. And the more deeply you dig into it, you find there's a clear-cut differentiation between the Christian world and life view as it affects government, religion, and economics, and that of all other systems. I'm using economics in a general term here, meaning human action, the way Ludwig von Mises used it in his treatise. But if uh, government is nothing more than an active religious ideas about right or wrong in ethics, and those ideas or laws then in turn frame the arena of human action, which is what economics is, it's not possible to separate uh, the abstract moral ro world from the concrete world of economics and day-to-day -day life. We see that very clearly. Uh, I remember I went through pilot training down in Laredo, Texas, and on the Rio Grande River, the differences between the religious systems south of the Rio Grande in Mexico and, of course, the uh, Protestant war that was dominated even in Laredo proper, and how that affected the different bureaucratic governmental and economic systems. And all that separated them was a river. There was no climatic difference. Essentially, uh, because they traded back and forth, there should have not have been an economic difference either. But there was. Of course there was. Mm -hmm. You had the very distinct uh, uh, class uh, separations there. In fact, walled off uh, streets where the very rich, who were less than 1% of the population, were separated from the masses who lived in the abject poverty in, in Mexico. You had the uh, corruption of the uh, bureaucratic officials, the police particularly, I recall. And then a mile north, 
across the Rio Grande and Laredo proper. There, there was the middle class. There was a, a, a community in every sense of the word. And the decentralization factor was, was in effect. And it seems that cultures move, as they move away from the basic Christian uh, principle of humility and with the use of the contract and decentralization that that, that, that brings, instead as they uh, move towards, I guess, the, what I consider the basic mental attitude sin of the Bible, sin of pride, they become status-oriented, vertical or bureaucratic in their organizations, and appearance-oriented. I found it interesting in your discussion uh, several easy chairs back where you discussed that we've become basically theatrical in our culture. It's, it's, uh, the stage has become reality. I've looked at that in, in, from an economic and social perspective is that we, we, we put on a face. We are basically status-oriented. We're performance-oriented, or rather appearance-oriented rather than performance-oriented. And when you become that way, basically you've lost the humility and service that's basic to a contractual decentralized society that produces widespread uh, prosperity. Well, let me, let me rephrase this and see if uh, I understand what you're saying. I've always <coughs> felt that the Catholic cultures never really understood capitalism. Uh, capitalism was a Protestant uh, step forward where you work for the sake of the future. You uh, in, take the profits and plow them back in order to build something eternal, something that will go on for generations. Where, of course, the old world, which the Catholic world represents to a considerable extent, always had commerce, but it didn't have capitalism. And when you talk about Mexico, you talk about Latin America. They don't understand capitalism down there the same way that uh, the Americans do because we've inherited this from the Reformation. Of course, it's fading here. Uh, there's an awful lot, a lot of anti-capitalist feeling in the United States that there's something unjust about the accumulation of wealth, even if it's put into the uh, service of the future. But uh, is this is am I paralleling what you're saying? Yes, it seems to me that Latin America had, in terms of its competitive environment with North America, had the educational elite had equal to or greater natural resources than we did, but they never had a Protestant Reformation. They never had that, that Puritan work ethic that gave them the ability to move from status, appearance, those vertically well, established bureaucratic institutions where they could basically work horizontally and, well, and I contractually. Don't, I don't like the phrase work ethic because they work very hard down there. That's not really the point. I remember being on a banana boat for the United Fruit Company many years ago, and we were tied up in one of those banana ports, maybe Costa Rica, Honduras, I don't know, I've forgotten which. And I was uh, <clears throat> on the rail. The third mate, you know, is in charge of uh, loading and unloading. And he was a straight United Fruit Company third mate. He was wearing a white tropical uniform with shoulder boards. And it was in the evening. We had floodlights on, and these little brown men with no shirts were carrying stalks of bananas in two 
two files, and there was one with a machete in the middle was lopping off the stem as they went by. A great swordsman, really. And then they'd put it on the conveyor belt, which would take it up and down into the hole, and others would stack the bananas there. Now, these are heavy. And they didn't walk. They ran at a trot, and they were covered with sweat. They were gleaming in the light. And I watched this, and I said to the mate, why do you suppose this country has never prospered? He said, because they're lazy. <laughs> now, that was the effect of propaganda, yes. which over, overbore all observation and common sense. To attach the work ethic to our system is not really it. We don't work that hard. We've got lots of machinery in the United States. And other countries, they work even harder because they work stupider, so to speak. Uh-huh. It's the system. I think uh, it's also leadership. No, uh, because yeah. lead, uh, the the elite have to have to lead by example. The financial educated, intellectual elite. And my my recollection of working in Guatemala was that they did not lead by example. They enjoyed inciting envy from the lower oh, classes. Parasitic, yes, we know that. They're, they're, they're rentiers, they're, they're landlords and usurers. Uh, and there was certain labor that was beneath them. You can never say anything too bad about the Latin American elite as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you uh, perhaps don't know, Ari, that Otto is part uh, Hispanic and Indian. Oh, I see it in his temper. <laughs> Well, uh, if I may uh, throw something in as background to this, because I think it ties in with our subject. A very brilliant medieval scholar, Lynn White, pointed out that the early and high Middle Ages had a great deal of capitalism. He dealt with the Cistercian monasteries and their relationship to the rise of capitalism and the work ethic. What you had was that the old Catholic culture was replaced with an elitist monarchistic culture. As a result, there was a different attitude towards work. Now, that same switch away uh, from a respect for work and a readiness to work has been taking place in this country. Not too many years ago, within the past 15 years, one scholar called attention to the fact that in India they can work very hard all day. But in terms of productivity, it's equivalent to 45 minutes of an American worker's time. It's because it's inefficient. It's because it's loaded with all kinds of ideas about avoiding machinery inherited from Gandhi and so on. So that hard work can be found all over the world, but productivity will vary dramatically from culture to culture. And an elitist culture will despise work and relegate it to the lower classes, in which case you separated intelligence, the intellectuals, 
from work. And therefore, work becomes less productive because work is despised. Intelligence is associated with uh, things like... With getting well, out of work. Yes. <laughs> Making others do the work for you, living off of it. But the goal is leisure rather than productivity. Yes. And this is the goal that's coming into this country. Well, that's a goal anywhere where you don't have a, a long-term view. Well, also, that's probably the fact that because of our peculiar economic situation right now, you can make more money with money than you can by working. Yes. If you have a corporation, you cannot get the kind of yield that you can from the financial markets. So, on the, across the board in the United States, Finance has replaced work, and one of the results of this has been the downfall in productivity. That's not only true yes. in, in business, but also that's, that's uh, the standard that's taught in the major uh, business schools at the major universities, Harvard, MIT, Wharton. In fact, on some days now in the international currency markets, only 5% of the currency transactions which take place are involved in legitimate commerce. And the yes. rest are simply The other uh, 70, 95 percent are, are effectively speculations. Speculations. And banks have departments, numerous employees that are hired to do nothing more than speculate with the bank's money in international currency arbitrage. So what, uh, you know, if one country did this, that would be one thing. If England did it, or we did it, or France. But the entire West is caught up in this poker game. It's global. It's global. And there's a gambling mania. And uh, it's spread now into other areas. The size of the contracts that, all right, $39 million for a mediocre picture by Van Gogh, who never really painted anything else. Thirty-nine million dollars for sunflowers. Five to seven times uh, conservative valuations of the worth of that. And God makes them more attractive, more cheaply. Well, inflation has been in financial assets, stocks, uh, real estate, selected real estate in cities, and in art, scarce art. Well, the idea here is that art is a speculation, but... Uh, I remember interviewing Bill Freeman, who was the uh, banker who took care of the uh, remains of the Insul Empire. And the stockholders who stuck with him got back all their money plus, because he did put it all together eventually. Old Mr. Insul, although he was harassed and persecuted, was really an honest financier and hadn't done anything dishonest. But at any rate... Uh, at the time that Freeman took it over in the, heart, the depths of the Depression, he, he called it the fire. He said, when the, when the fire starts, cash gets the bargains. And I remember the Depression, and I remember how many people tried to sell oil paintings. And I tell you, you couldn't get a bowl of soup for them. <laughs> I want to add a footnote to my currency comments. If I find the currency markets at a critical time as I do presently, I'll arise at 6 in the morning and check the openings in New York at 6.15, watch the markets till 6.30, follow them through to the close, 
4.30 that afternoon, I'll call international overseas markets and find out what's happening in the Far East, in Australia, Singapore, Hong Kong. 2 a.m. the next day, I'll mm -hmm. check with Switzerland, and then we're back to the U.S. market. So it is now literally a Big global 24-hour Las Vegas-type crash. Absolutely. It never stops. That's right. What do you see in the near future, the next five years or so, in terms of the economy? Don't you think five years is a long time? In, in this existentialist world, it is. It's a long-term view. You know, when you say in the near term, it used to be true yeah. that five years was the near term. But we're living in a period where I really think five years is a long term. You're right. Uh, I've been told that uh, 30 and 60 days is long term. <laughs> I haven't reached that stage yet. <laughs> You know, commodity traders have historically been seen as short-term traders. Well, the vast majority of commodity traders now are day traders, some of whom may trade in and out of a market. In one day? Oh, 5, 10, 15, 20 times in one day. Go in in the morning, come out again, go back, and so forth. That is short-term. And take a point or two each time? There are seminars being held on how to day trade the market intraday, and they're the most popular seminars being held today. Now that you have real-time computers, they're online. They're online. So we are short-term market. And, and looking at, at your work, Rush, and flipping all the, the, the clear uh, biblical laws that you've pointed out and helped me understand into the realm of time, I found that seems like every single Christian principle to be implemented successfully in terms of God's commandment as well as for man's good does require a long-term view. Short-term pain for long-term gain, what historically was the American uh, cultural norm. Well, this is true of every immigrant group <coughs> that came into the country. The original immigrants worked hard and did without in order that their children would have a better chance. But it's just reversed today. It's not the long-term view. It's get what you can short-term and we'll not worry about the long-term. In terms of that, Otto, I recall 40 or more years ago spending about a week at the Labor Temple in New York City. It was in the heart of the immigrant district. And at that time, the staff there at the Labor Temple told me that the entire neighborhood changed its complexion every five years. The shops, the language of the streets, would go from one language to another mm -hmm. because in terms of the opportunities in this country... And this goes back to the Depression. This is still true. The people would advance themselves. But what has happened since then is that the people who work in places like that are finding that government intervention in the form of welfareism freezes the people in such a neighborhood. Well, yes. I don't think they're as free as they were. Uh, I notice every time I go to New York there's a new crop of cab drivers. And I've lived through Israelis, and uh, I don't know who, what the present crop is. In Washington, D.C., African tribesmen with scars and so forth. 
and and you really you <laughs> they they pushed out the Arabs. There were Arabs in Washington. Now they're Ethiopians. About five or six years ago. So <laughs> this is true. I mean, the cab driver is one of the ways that a man without any other skill can move on, and uh, you can do it at odd hours. It's not like London, where they have to have an examination and they have to memorize uh, the major arteries of metropolitan London and prove it before they get a license. In uh, New York and Washington, D.C., all they have to do, I think, is have the money. And that's it. That's very true, Otto, and I have to tell something on myself. I picked up a cab once at the hotel to get to the airport in a hurry. And it was someone who looked like... Uh, on fresh out of the African jungle. And probably was. And I wasn't sure he would uh, understand English. So uh, <clears throat> that is beyond uh, National Airport or something like that. And I forget what started the con conversation. But to my amazement, he was a very devout Christian. <laughs> Probably more so than some of his uh, fellow blacks there in Washington. It was very surprising. Well, I got a, a hotel room during Reagan's first inauguration when there were no rooms to be obtained from an Arab cab driver who had a friend who was the assistant manager of one of the Hiltons. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have today a leadership in the media and in politics who believe that things are frozen, that if you're at the bottom, you're never going to rise. And they're running the country on that basis, and with their taxation and ec various economic practices, they're trying to reduce it well, to a frozen status. That was the old Democratic Party uh, and the old economic theory in the 30s, if you recall. Mm -hmm. The idea was that the frontier was all gone, and we had reached our limits, and now all we had to do was to share the pie equally. Well, of course, since then, we've had the greatest boom in history. But Gary Hart, just this past week, has been talking the old way. Well, uh, Gary Hart sort of lost me on the curve when he went to get Bork Gorbachev's approval for his candidacy <laughs> for president of the United States. Yes. You have to understand he needs the uh, sanction, the, the positive sanction of the other side of the U.S.-USSR Trade and Economic Council. Yes, I think so. That's an interesting group, by the way. Yes. Very interesting to bring that up. We uh, let our farmers go bankrupt and uh, subsidize the 400 uh, business organizations that deal with uh, slave labor in the Soviet Union. Yes. Slave labor products are supposed to be illegal in the United States, but they are brought in without question from the Soviet Union. A great deal of our exports to the Soviet Union are, are channeled through Austria if they're on the uh, prohibited export list. Mm -hmm. Just as much of what Cuba receives from us is funneled through Canada. 
Canada has never uh, broken diplomatic relations no. with uh, Castro. No. It's part of their independence uh, of the United States that they take a contrary foreign policy. We've been talking a great deal about uh, the trade imbalance with Japan, who is one of our two best customers. Where is the real trade imbalance? What country... Uh, it's always uh, been with Canada. It's always been with Canada. I found it interesting that there weren't any, any serious discussions about that in the recent Mulroney-Reagan uh, conference. Uh, well, look at, uh, look at the participants. How would you expect a serious discussion? Right. It was a theatrical performance. After Canada... Both good-looking men. It's Western Europe. But we don't rant about Western Europe the way that we do about Japan. Japan, I understand. I haven't been over in Japan since the end of World War II. But my understanding is that when you go over there, you see all sorts of American products. You see... Uh, American goods everywhere. Yes, they're very important to customer. We do more trade in the Pacific by far than in the Atlantic. And it is interesting, I found out the weekend before last, that uh, American companies have uh, large holdings in Japan. Ford owns 20% of Mazda. We've got lots of money in all these places. Look, look where Japan was at the end of World War II. They were a devastated economy. We never asked the question publicly, who financed them? Who rebuilt them? Well, American capital financed them. American uh, banks refinanced them with American workers' money. So basically, what, what's happened is that there are a lot of uh, wealthy Americans who have benefited from the, the Japanese industrial boom, and in a sense, American workers have financed their own unemployment. Well, uh, let's put it another way. I agree with what you say. What's happened here is that the American financiers have done what the English financiers did earlier in the 19th century. The United States was built on English money. The English money put together the Transcontinental Railroad. It, it, uh, it created the ranching industry. We've got the methods from the Spaniards, but we got the land and everything else uh, through the English capitalists. London financed the industrial rise of the United States at the expense of the poor little fellow who was living in England. And there are societies in England still trying to collect money their great-grandparents lent well, to the United States. Well, they can't because Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt both force these people to sell out at bargain prices in order to help them in World War One and Two. So when it comes to this, I will say the United States played a much worse game. You know, we've, at the base problem here is we've lost our perspective in terms of honest money in capitalism, which was rooted in Christian economics, because what we have today is a perverted form of evolutionary debt capitalism, and of course, Debt is borrowing from the future by mortgaging the past to consume in the present, and capitalism is saving from the past and the present for investment in the future. So you put debt and capitalism together, it's like put, putting the words mercy killing together. Well, well antithetical. I think that's a fascinating 
fascinating uh, definition, but I'd like to get back to the uh, business of the English lending money to the Americans. They got money for it, of course. Mm -hmm. They made a profit. Then the Americans lending money to these third world countries in Asia and other, thir other countries in Latin America, Brazil, for instance. Now, understand, first of all, Japan has one edge on us. It doesn't have any military. Therefore, it can take all its money and put it into the consumer market. After the Japanese did well with the steel industry, the Koreans displaced them, and now I understand Brazil has displaced Korea as an exporter of, of steel products. So what is happening here is that we're seeing, as England saw, other countries beginning to take the same industrial pattern. Maybe the whole world will be industrialized and it'll equalize out, I don't know, but everybody can't live by uh, well, with Mexican the, old, lady, yeah. old, old, the old pattern. In other words, if England could only be preeminent for a while, Japan only for a while, Korea only for a while, and so forth. What happens when all these countries get equal productivity? You have a glut. You have a glut. And that's what the creation of credit does in a fractional reserve banking system, is encourage overproduction of even capital goods during inflationary times, so that when that debt pyramid contracts, you have excessive competition, uh, first uh, shrinking markets. We see that in agriculture, for example. How do we compete where uh, AMC takes American workers' money through multinational banks and, and builds a jeep factory in China where they pay the uh, Chinese 60 cents uh, a day to work, Mexican workers? We've seen uh, our Secretary of Commerce encourage American uh, manufacturers to invest uh, south of uh, Rio Grande where they pay Mexican workers $24 a week. I understand they've got factories all along, all along the southern end of the border. Go down to El Paso and, uh, and, and drive across and, the border. And, and fabricating factories all the way, big industrial sector because of the low wage. Right. One of the keys that I've come to is not only honest money, but also I think it's, it's, it's important for an individual to husband his money and his capital as it is for a husband and a family the husband and his wife because if you lose control of your capital you lose control of your financial destiny in a debt capitalistic system long term I would I, I look at it in a similar fashion from another angle as far as I'm concerned it means that the governing class of the United States has lost its sense of responsibility to the people of this country. That they're willing to make a profit at the expense of their own people. And I think that's about the worst thing that can be said okay. about any governing but class. See, that's the Latinization of our culture. We've come back full circle to where we started off. Is the, is the governing class, intellectually, in terms of money, well, has don't, to don't blame the Latins for the corruption of these characters. No, but... Okay, but there's a similarity that we have assimilated from Latin American culture no, and from old England. No, we, we got it from straight developing a progressive series. Just as the Puritans, the first generation worked hard, the second generation prospered, the third gen by the third generation, according to Perry Miller, the Puritans of Massachusetts were already being corrupted. This is a simple corruption, and Latins have nothing to do with it. <laughs> it is a decline of 
faith and morals. Exactly. exactly. What is our problem? In every culture, you have a particular form of decline, but it's always when the faith and the morality of a people decline in every sphere, they're going to go downhill. On this decline of the culture, Otto, you took a linear human action progression and Rush took a theological perspective. And I, there's, I think there's validity to both of those. For example, in a, in a credit economy, it takes about 50 years to move from depression to depression. And the human action sequences, Lord Overstone pointed out, and has been seen by an economist at the Department of Commerce named, named Funk in 1931, is that if you, as a result of depression, people become very conservative and very thrifty and save their capital. Well, after a while, that gets old. They save their capital. That they develop a sense of confidence. Confidence leads then to some investment. Investment leads to business activity. Business activity picks up, and there becomes prosperity. By this time, they started to lose the lessons of the depression. Prosperity leads to the use of credit. The use of credit is followed by the abuse of credit. Then you're into the inflationary era, where things are overpriced. And uh, that leads to a, a, a dropping off of confidence and high, high levels of speculation, and then some point in time, fear and panic, and you're back to stage one in the depression. Well, you you've omitted the government. I'm talking about a classic credit creation. Now, the the truth of the matter is, is that where you have the government involved in the economy to the extent it is today, then you have a compounding of problems because you can also have. Uh, a credit contraction and an inflationary economy at the same time, or at least an inflation in the in, in the in the in the worthlessness of the of the money. So well, you have the worst of both worlds: an inflationary recession or worse. You really do. Uh, I think Latin America again. I think uh, Murray Rothbard described it fairly well. He said productivity drops, but the amount of money that's being pumped into the economy remains constant or even increases. So there you have the paradox of unemployment, drop in productivity, and an increase in prices, which is what we've been seeing. Now the nuisance index of, uh, of basics that people buy has increased at a 28% rate, recently documented. That's, that's a far cry from the 4% inflation rate that the government tells us exists. This is on the, on the question of simply, they, I believe somebody took a study of the prices. One of the banks. Said they've gone up 28%. Kellner, I believe. Is this 28% a year? It was, 20, e it was either uh, over a two-year period or well, one-year period. Probably a two-year period. Uh, my re recollection, we were really experiencing now a real inflation rate of about 12% a year. I think so, and I think this has been constant since Reagan got in office, for instance, in 1980, and they began to tell us that inflation had dropped down to 4%. You can't buy anything for what you could buy it for in 1982. I think what's important right now is the week of March 23rd was decisively the end of the eye of the hurricane as far as uh, Reaganomics is concerned. The, any illusions that the markets had with regard to uh, a carryover of good times were dissipated that week because what happened that week w was that we saw the bond market crater and the bond market is four to five times larger than our stock market, much more significant. As a result of bonds falling, stock market had a significant correction and also coupled with 
those corrections in those main institutional financial markets, we saw gold and silver prices increase substantially. And that's the first time since interest rates rose significantly up to 22% when Volcker stepped on the brakes back in 1980. It's the first time we've seen rates go higher and also inflationary indicators such as in primary commodities increase as well. Heretofore, over the past uh, six years, and now in the seventh year, we've seen where rates have gone up. It's it's uh, also pressured or depressed commodity prices. This time, that was no longer true. So this you, is a significant change. Do you think that the Iran Gate business, which was in effect the torpedoing of the Reagan administration, you know that up until uh, up until this Iranian Reagan uh, had created or benefited from, however you want to put it, an atmosphere of confidence. The people were feeling, as they did under Eisenhower, that after all, things are pretty good. Even when things are, are not pretty good, even though there is a depression in 30 states, the general impression was that the country was in good shape. Internationally, the country had attained a certain amount of confidence that the right things were being said, the Soviets were being faced and confronted, and this and that and so on, even though there wasn't much real uh, solid solidity to this. Now the, Reagan, <clears throat> now the Reagan presidency is badly shaken. Confidence overseas is reflected by the falling dollar. And the United States is beginning to reap the rewards of having a cat fight at home and exhibiting once again to the world that we have in uh, positions of great power and authority, idiots. Attorneys are the terms synonymous, I guess. At least when they're political. Well, we... It's, it's hard to say, but I guess you're right. Uh, I noticed that at the uh, Sh Secretary Schultz went over to speak to Gorbachev and that the Speaker of the House Wright and a bunch of Democratic congressmen went over also and held separate meetings with Gorbachev at the same time. Well, it was July two years ago that they effect effectively agreed to... Uh I think it was in Geneva, Reagan's meeting with Gorbachev in Geneva, they agreed to a, a cultural, educational, uh, media and arts exchange with the Soviet Union. Yeah, I read that with What horror. amazes me is that they talk about the change in the Soviet Union, the new direction, the openness, and so on. I'm amazed that they have the nerve to talk that way because I'm old enough to remember when Lenin's new economic policy was being talked of as the end of communism, yes. the new order. Yes, they were, they were. Then when Stalin triumphed over Trotsky was the death of communism, and Stalin was even referred to as uh, feeling his way perhaps towards capitalism. When he died, it was a new order. Uh, Malenkov and then especially with Khrushchev. With Brezhnev, we had the same kind of talk, and each of his successors, and now Gorbachev, the same old, stale they never, talk. They never stop. No, and yet people go on believing it. Rush, we have no sense of history in this country, collectively. 
uh, the average American spends 15 years of his life watching television. When he watches television, he is watching an illusion of an illusion. So he's already two two steps removed from reality. If that's true, they must really love advertising. (laughs) Three years of his life watching advertising now. Back to your question on the dollar. It's been my contention for the past several years. There have been three things that have supported the strength in the U.S. dollar. One was confidence in, in President Reagan, which is, as you correctly pointed out, now gone. Two was the uh, statesmanship in international banking circles of Paul Volcker, who may not be with the Federal Reserve come this August, may not be reappointed. And thirdly were high real rates of interest, which supported the U.S. dollar uh, the higher rates higher than the rate of inflation in the U.S. dollar as opposed to those that were available overseas. All three of those areas of support are on the wane. And when we see the bond market drop 9 to 10 points, as we have very quickly over a period of a few trading sessions, high interest rates in an old economic recovery, in a recovery that's now over 50 months old, basically are, uh, are water on the fire, so to speak. And so the Fed is, in a sense, trapped. If the market dictates higher interest rates, it slows down the economy. At the same time, if they push interest rates lower, you have you have inflation taking taking off, and then bond prices crater anyway. It's right. a catch twenty-two. But Ari, you say this is the oldest uh, boom we've had for a long time, maybe forever. But in the last few years, there's been a deindustrialization. I was in Salt Lake City not too long ago and saw uh, Kennecott Copper's great mine up there closed down, the greatest open uh, copper mine in the world. And everywhere that I've been now in blue-collar areas, there's great unemployment, there's considerable distress, and it carries me back to the 20s. I remember the 20s, as you do, very vividly, and it was a terrible period for working people. It yes. was a hard period for working people. It was a great period for certain speculative uh, industries, real estate, advertising, uh, bootlegging, if you want to say it. it was Drugs a, today. It, it was a big industry in those yes. days, underground but nevertheless alive. And uh, the stock market was booming and so forth. The bond market, I don't know about the bond market, but the stock market definitely. Well, the farmers had their crash in 21. Yes, and they never fully recovered. Never. The prices never came back. A half a million of them lost their farms. What would you suppose would happen now if a half a million farmers lost their farms in one year, as they did from 21 to 22? Look at the difference in the expectations of the people. We've, it's, it's not unlike, by analogy, a family that, that has lost its job but had some savings and it's living off its capital until it's depleted because what we've done is basically destroy our agricultural industry, our petroleum oil complex, our, our manufacturing capability, and with 70% of our jobs created today in the service sector, the only way that we've been able to maintain the illusion of an ongoing uh, vital economy has been by uh, debt. There are therefore our trade imbalance, credit. credit. So you basically got 70% of the co- of the jobs created in the last decade have been in the service sector. Service sector spending is now two thirds of our GNP. So if you have one of two things happen: one, uh, recession in the service sector or two, a fall in single-family home 
prices, the two things that are closest hard to the American consumer, then you could see a panic. But until that point in time, what we're doing is living the illusion brought on by debt and our trade deficit that have kept this economy going. Well, panic isn't quite the word for it. I have come around to the idea that the United States, to a considerable extent, resembles the Weimar Republic. And there weren't, there wasn't a panic in the Weimar Republic when, when uh, the Depression hit, when the banks collapsed. What there was was the organization of seditious minorities. And uh, all the elements for such organizational efforts exist here. I can't get out of my mind these busloads of people that go down to Washington to demonstrate. And always a question that always comes into my mind as an old-fashioned reporter, which I never hear answered by TV or the newspapers, is who hired the buses? Who paid for the hotel rooms? Who's buying the food? How do all these people manage to make the trip? Where are the organizers? Who are the financiers of these demonstrations? What's going on? So I would expect that if things really fell apart or got very difficult, that we would see some very strange new groups or even some old groups suddenly get many more members and start storming Congress for extreme action. But I think for that to happen, you'll have to have the American consumer hurt in the service sector and also see a sharp fall in, in single-family home prices because that's where he's boring presently, called home equity They're loans. They're borrowing money on their house. Home. Well, then, of course, effectively called HELS, H-E-L-S, home equity loans. Uh, that's, I didn't realize that. <laughs> By the way, there's one other factor I wanted to bring in, into. I think into play here is that, that Iran-Gate, Contra, uh, I think was time released because at that point of time there were considerable Pentagon efforts underway for a naval blockade and an invasion of Nicaragua and the Iran Gate Contra affair Diverted put them. that on the back burner immediately. Well, the, the, the Kremlin should coin some medals, some special medals, maybe with a diamond embedded in the middle of a medal of gold for some of our congressmen with the help that they've provided to the Soviet Union. Yes. I read a book uh, in the past week. I forget the title. It was one of several that I've read. That made a point in passing that uh, you made, first of all, Otto, in your article for our business journal on the oil crisis. And the author saw the beginning of the end in 1973, and he said it was then that the integrity of contracts was destroyed. And he said, after that, what is there left? That was exactly. The United States State Department said the contract didn't matter, that a nation could sell its oil and still remain the proprietor of it. Well, we'll see come 1990 when we import 50% of our oil. Well, do you know that uh, a great many of us uh, have talked to people in Washington, and it's an amazing experience. 
to talk to somebody in Washington about the oil situation and about the fact that the Arabs are in bed with the majors and they're importing gasoline and jet fuel and diesel fuel and our refineries are closing down, our drilling is stopped, etc., and have them agree with us, agree, and then say, but we can't do anything about it because, you know, free trade is our religion. Their religion is staying in power. Oh, I stand corrected, and I think you're absolutely right. That's absolutely right. In, in 1985, U.S. multinational investment in OPEC produced a return of 24.7%. Yes, that's the majors. That's the majors. That's the majors. It makes it very difficult to sympathize with Texaco, even though I think they're in a terrible position. Well, they're all going to pay for their sins, and Texaco is. Uh, it's a tremendous injustice that's been done to them, but uh, not many people are going to cry for them. No, it's very difficult to cry for them. The, but, of course, the difference in doing business on a corporate level in the United States and in other places is really considerable. Every three months, a major public corporation has to issue a report, and it has to show a profit. If it doesn't, if it shows a loss or even a drop in profits, the stock value goes down, the shareholders complain, all kinds of things happen to shake the managers. Now, I talked to uh, Bob Black years ago, who was running, uh, or rather Robert Appleby, who was running Black & Decker in Britain. And they don't pay their taxes over there, corporate taxes, till the end of the year. They don't pay quarterly taxes, and they don't pay them in advance either. And I said, well, what happens uh, if you have a tax problem? Well, he said, if there's a tax problem, I call up the appropriate fellow in the government and talk to him. And uh, he'll say, well, if it's that difficult, Robert, uh, we'll give you an extension, or we'll do this. This is for a corporation. And here we're getting to be like, I don't know whether it's a canard or whether it's true, or this is the way the the Germans are reputed to be, the way that I think the Soviets' commissars really are, that the rule applies no matter who it kills. You know, you look back at, at... the feudal economy of the Middle Ages, Rush, and even the kings and the landlords and the serfs had mutual duties and responsibilities to each other, or the right to revolt was reserved to the serfs. Today we have a government bureaucracy which is accountable to no one, so there is no reciprocal benefit whatsoever. And what Otto referred to, these quarterly reports and taxes and so on, you remember when Gene Newman was here, he reported on the fact that some owners of companies that had gone public were buying back the shares now because while they had additional capital by going public, they had lost the ability to run the company. To run the company and have long-range plans. You can't make long-range plans when you have a public company because you ha- you cannot hoard your profits. You Do you realize that under the Roosevelt administration they put a ceiling on profits to begin with? 
they said you have to either share it with the shareholders or pay it in taxes but you cannot as in the old days take in all the profit that you've actually earned you've got to distribute it it's unfair to keep the money that you've made now the corporations wanted to keep the money in order to make long-range plans but since you have to dis disperse the money to the shareholders how, how long-range can you get well you have to go into debt this is where your your thesis is right on yes. target because then everybody is in debt eight feet over their head well of course the incentives are not there in the tax system to accumulate capital long term because you have uh, of course the dividends that you have to pay double taxation you have uh, retained earnings problems you have the investor mindset which basically demands dividends paid whether the company made a profit or not oh absolutely you can be losing money and they'll say well are you going to raise the dividend this year or not and if you're too prosperous you get taken over by corporate raiders with junk bonds well that's something one else. of the first essays I wrote a good many years ago was on Assyria and debt is that so the ancient Assyrians Assyria. the ancient Assyrians had a policy uh, we remember them for their uh, campaigns of total terror. Yes. But before they ever moved against a country, they first sent in, the Babylonians used the same method, state-subsidized merchants offering easy credit. After they had a country head over heels in debt, and becoming very prosperous with all these luxury items then they moved against them because mm -hmm. they knew that a debt-ridden people are not a free people and have lost a great deal of their moral fiber and that was the strategy that Assyria devised to destroy nations now we have done that to ourselves I've seen this on a very minor level uh, I've listened to uh, executives saying well how many children does he have and the fellow says he has two kids he said alright uh, that's fine he's got two kids uh, has, he, uh, has he got a house has he got a mortgage yes he's got a mortgage fine let's put him on Mm -hmm. because if he hasn't got a house they'll lend him the money to put down for a house and now he's got a lifetime contract he's got a good long deal that's a standing philosophy among insurance companies in terms of the way they uh, want their uh, insurance salesmen positioned in their private lives because as long as they're heavily mortgaged or in debt they know they have to work and long hours to sell policies in order to make their, meet their debt service. And so this more has, productive. This has a the benefit of the company, not the benefit of the individual. Of it has a tremendous effect on how an executive stands up inside the company. Yes. Uh, you're not going to get into too many fights if you're totally dependent. There's another aspect. There's not only this factor of debt to demoralize people. First, it's immoral, this long-term debt. Second, it has a psychological effect. As Solomon said, the borrower is slave to the lender. Exactly. That's a form of slavery. There is another aspect. Taxation has become a form of continual debt. Well, you're never out. You owe money every day to the yes. government. When uh, 
I was a boy, and through the Depression years, the farmers here in California, family farms, $10 a year. If you had hard times, if you lost your entire crop through frosts or freezes, you could hole up, you could plant a, a garden, you had your cow and your chickens, you rode it out. Yeah. But now those same farms, the annual taxes are thousands of dollars, and they cannot survive. Well, economics comes down to land and labor. So if you've got a property tax on one hand and an income tax on the other, you got them going and coming. You sure do. You sure do. And it's interesting that as time has passed, more and more Americans have traveled farther and farther around the world and take jet planes to London and Rome and so forth and so on. Yet it seems to me that the American people are more provincial now than they were when I was a kid because they no longer look at other cultures seriously. They no longer believe that there's anything to learn from the rest of the world. They haven't been taught how to think or to look. I think one of the most telling arguments along that line came from Dr. Thomas Sowell, who's at Stanford now, black economist who is now a free market in his, oriented in his perspective, formerly a Marxist. And he said he hated students coming out of the public schools because all they knew how to do was memorize. They did not know how to think critically or to observe. They can't even memorize now. Well, we have approaching, I guess, 60 million illiterate Americans out of a total population of 240 million. Uh, It's it's not good. It takes some strange forms. Uh, I was invited recently to speak at a at a businessman's club here in California, and these things are amusing because first of all the fellow called me up and asked me if I'd be willing to speak for them, and I said yes. And now the next thing stage in the in the process was that somebody had to screen me, and uh, he called me. They didn't say it, but that of course is what it amounted to, and and. Uh, he called me up and he wanted to talk about South Africa, and I said, "Well, I understand you've been you've uh, you've got a copy of my book on the subject." Well, he said, "I've been too busy to read it." So, asked me a few questions about. It. I started to answer them, and he corrected me. <laughs> and I thought, you know, this is very typical. Very typical. The newspapers have told him all he needs to know. Yes, and it isn't. Uh knowledge that counts the most common remarks in the modern era I think or I feel not what God says not what the truth about a particular episode or part of history uh, is it's I think I feel that's the end result of humanism and it's the death of any sensible a perspective. Well, an opinion without information mm-hmm. is pretty exasperating. Yes. That humanistic perspective has really taken a threefold application. People will say, I believe, religious perspective, I think, supposedly rational, and then I feel, emotional. And you can see which perspective of humanism they're coming from, whether or not they use the word believe, think, or feel. 
Well, I bring this business of looking outside the country up deliberately because inflation is one of the oldest of governmental crimes. It was so well known that when I was in the sixth grade, they taught me about coin clipping. And we have had a front row seat. We've watched inflation in Bolivia. We've watched inflation in uh, Central Europe, the greatest inflation of all, I guess, in Hungary in 1946 and 47. Uh, inflation in Great Britain. Inflation at home. What we haven't experienced yet is an inflationary recession in the true sense of the word, where it's ongoing and there don't seem to be any answers, as we've seen down in Latin America. It hasn't hit the chute yet. That's right. When that hits, then we'll start to see the group uh, radicalization, I think you're, you're referring to. By the way, an interesting sidelight is that Americans have, uh, in times of uh, financial concern, moved into U.S. Treasury bills, short-term Treasury instruments for safety. Well, the Soviet Union will be offering its own Treasury bills now <laughs> in Europe this summer. So we now oh. invest in Soviet Treasury bills. Well, that'll be interesting to see <laughs> how many suckers there are. Well, I wonder if uh, women strike for peace will buy Soviet bonds. <laughs> we'll be in, actually, I guess, T-bills. Dr. Spock. Dr. Spark put yes. some of the millions that he got, yes. The body of freedom, and we've talked a lot about slavery tonight. The body of freedom stands on the legs of, of law and economics in terms of honest money, uh, equity capitalism, Christian economics, and biblical law. Because, as you and I discussed on the way here, Rush, there is no real equality among men unless all men are equal under God's law because if a man makes a law he's by definition unequal over the man he governs and yet what we've done in this country in economics we've, we know that the least consumer satisfaction comes anytime there's a government granted monopoly in any particular area that's classic economics if there's a government granted monopoly consumer satisfaction is minimized and yet we've seen that in terms of money and economics where basically the Federal Reserve has granted a monopoly on the issuance of money and credit we've seen it in the area of law with American Bar Association rules we see it in the education where the public school system runs things so people have limited information and we see it also in our health in terms of the American Medical Association where the World Health Organization now ranks us in the 40th percentile 40th. so in terms of, of money, law education and health for critical areas to the health and well-being of any society or any individual we now have government sanctioned monopolies do you think that uh, the Christian community has any grasp of the economic situation in terms the way I view the Christian community is basically is, uh, go uh, ahead we have just about a minute right. left uh, Ari so uh, the Christian community basically is monastic today it sees itself in terms of its of its church, its local family, and and now because of the abortion factor is taking uh, an overview with regard to taking a position with regard to politics. It has not looked at economics. It has not grown beyond individual Christianity and the church. It's just stepping out in terms of the challenges that it faces in the political economic arena. And no, we haven't addressed those. We're just on the forefront of those today. Well, I think we're going to have to wind it up uh, now. Uh, it's been a delight, Ari. 
I'm uh, sorry you can't come more often and congratulations on the soon to arrive sixth child thank you uh, we'll be in prayer for Linda as she uh, delivers this child uh, we do appreciate you we enjoy every opportunity we have to be together so thank you very very much authorized by the Calcedon Foundation archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library digitized by Christrules.com